Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast, brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales, entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for gravitas. Today, you'll meet the humble warrior the former NFL football player who played for the Baltimore Ravens and the New Orleans Saints, then turned Navy SEAL. He actually worked in special ops. He's the self-proclaimed worst financial advisor and a humble guy who is so comfortable in his own skin. He shares with us today wisdom from the ball field and the battlefield, and indeed the farm. We found a farming connection between the two of us. He's focused on the soft skills of veterans and athletes. He talks about building high ground for hard days, and we'll understand what that's all about. He believes that we are indeed all imperfect, and he looks to find the pure version of ourselves. There's a lot to share. Please welcome to the show, Clint Bruce. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Clint, what is your story? I know there's a lot to tell about Clint Bruce. But what is your story? Let's go right back to the beginning. Sure. It's it's very Forrest Gumpian. It should be encouraging to virtually all your listeners that uh, if this guy can, then I can as well. But, um, I, you know, I consider myself very fortunate. I've, I've had adversity, which I, I think I'm not unique in this at all. Um, I've always been able to come back to this moral center that was laid in front of me from the time I can remember. So, you know, I was born in Arkansas. A part of my family kind of had had moved out of the ranching and farming into business. My, my father had become a, a business person had served in the army. And then another half of my family is really in farming and ranching. So I, I got to see what happens when you export the work ethic and ethos that you have to have if you work with the land and the patience that you have to have when you work with the land into the private sector and into all these other business endeavors. So grew up in Arkansas, very grateful for that. Moved down to the Dallas-Fort Worth area when I was in middle school. And uh, just had always managed to find a way where I was surrounded by these really amazing people and just trying to keep up with them. I have this theory called chase, pace, and pull, where you're just chasing the right people. And I've always been in an environment that were people who were chase-worthy. So moved down to Garland, Texas. Um, then uh, uh, loved football way before football loved me. I joke with people that I was a fifth-string fullback in eighth grade, uh, which wouldn't have been too bad, but there were only three other fullbacks. So they actually were skipping a whole position on the depth chart. That, that's the amount of desperation the team was going to have to be in in order for me to go in. So I decided very early whether I loved the game because it was the game or if I loved the game because of what it did for me. And I just, I just loved being a part of a team. And I didn't resign myself, but I committed myself to being a contributor in whatever uh, way that allowed me to be. So I became probably the most prolific scout team football player in, in, in all of Texas. And I played every position. And I got so many reps, and, and, and I think there's some magic that comes to that, which we'll allude to as we continue talking, but continue to stay with the team. And, and uh, I had this one coach that just didn't have a lot of faith in my uh, – and in his defense, it's not like there's a tremendous amount of evidence to support a contrary theory. But I remember he told me, he's like, hey, stop wasting your mind time and just focus on theater. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to theater because there's cute girls there. I'm going to still play football just to make you mad. So I kind of – went into these two worlds of, of, of both theater and, and performing arts and, and then stayed in football. And uh, in retrospect, I, I realized how blessed I was to have done that. I think football gave me a lot of what I needed for the physicality of the special operations community. I think theater taught me a lot of the, uh, what I call neck up performance, the, the mental strength and resilience to ascend into this persona that the endeavor needs you to be. Uh, started to have a pretty successful career in high school, was getting opportunities to go play at a lot of different division one schools and um, my senior year, my father uh, got sick and, and passed away at the end of my senior year. So the majority of my senior year, my father was in the hospital. And, you know, it's really interesting. The world tries to sell you a whole lot. And you're either going to uh, buy what the world is selling you or going to look around at these people that you're chasing. 
and figure out what they bought and what they bought into and what persisted and what endured. And I learned a lot about how to live by watching my father die. And, um, and, and so I was just able to kind of witness that and, and grab onto those things that I saw him holding on to and the people that loved him most, my mom, my sister, my brother, his friends. And so through that experience, um, I'd always loved the Army Navy game. The Army Navy game had all, was always extremely special to me. Uh, I got interviewed one time by, I think it was CBS or ESPN one time, and they asked me, uh, it, it tells about rivalry games. And I said, well, what do you think? And they, they listed all these, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, and Florida, and Florida State, and Georgia. And I, I mean, all these, and I love these games. I do. And I said, hey, listen, I love rivalry games, but Army Navy stands apart. And they kind of, you know, it, it kind of took them aback a little bit. And they said, why do you say that? I said, well, you show me another game where everyone playing is willing to die for everybody watching. And I'll tell you that I have company, that we have company. And I always wanted to be a part of that. So I, I, uh, I also knew, I remember my father told me one time, and the way they say it now, I think is really fitting. And I think it's the way my father said it to me back in 1992. He said, son, you have to make a 40-year decision and not a four-year decision. Since the oldest son, I had to make some decisions about where I was going to go try to play and, and, and look beyond the, the, the ball field to the, the battlefield and the boardroom and the breakfast tables. You know, um, so chose the Naval Academy. Uh, very, very fortunate to play football at the Naval Academy and, um, <laughs> for a few reasons. One, you know, to be a pretty strong, powerful, angry 18-year-old, you know, you, you just, the Naval Academy gave me some structure that I just didn't really have a, a place to point that destructive nature and anger except for the football field because you can think you're a tough guy until it's 5.30 in the morning in Newport, Rhode Island, and a Silver Star recipient Marine Corps officer who comes up to your chest is putting his finger in your chest telling you to lock it up. And you're like, I, I, believe, I believe I will lock it up. I'm not sure what that means, but whatever that means is what I'm going to do because you're terrifying. And uh, – just got to live in that landscape of uh, heroic men and women who would just kind of put their words to work, study the history of that, uh, had a very successful career at the, at the Naval Academy because I had amazing teammates and, and amazing coaches that I stay close with now. And I'm, I'm still close with the, with the team now and um, had an opportunity to, to play in the NFL uh, briefly, uh, was with the Baltimore Ravens and had also been given the tremendous honor of pursuing becoming a Navy SEAL. There were only 16 of us at the time that were picked for that. So for me, leaving the game was very easy because I, in comparison to becoming a, uh, the opportunity to become a SEAL, it, it, it was very clearly a game. Um, and I'm not diminishing it. Like, I, I love professional sports, and I think professional sports has a unique role in reconciling our nation, and athletes and veterans do. Um, but I also knew the game, and I, I knew I could play it. I didn't know how well I could do it. I didn't know how long I could stay in the NFL, but I knew I got there. And here was this ridgeline over here called becoming a Navy SEAL. And I had no idea if I could do that. And I just kind of feel called to go where I don't know. And uh, so left the NFL, went through SEAL training, made it. Again, I had amazing classmates. And we kind of got each other through. And, and when I say someone carried me through, I, I don't think I ever got below 250 pounds when I was going through SEAL training. So carrying me through is no small thing. It's not a, that's a, they, they did a lot of work to help carry me through. And then, um, Checked in the SEAL Team 5, had an opportunity to come back out to the NFL in 1999 with the New Orleans Saints and loved it, loved the opportunity, but it just kind of paled in comparison as far as uh, uh, purposefulness and relevance uh, and, and the opportunity to be a um, – and there was no desire for me to ever not do what I said I would, wanted to do when I went to Annapolis. I wanted to serve. And so for me, I, I left and went back into the special operations community, did multiple deployments, and um, – Learned a lot from some amazing men and women. And um, then my, my bride, who was my college sweetheart, uh, had our daughter while I was over. And I came home with this nine-month girl. And I just kind of looked around the special operations community. And everywhere I looked was, I think, someone who was better, faster, stronger, smarter than me. Uh, and, and just really came to grips with the fact that the community is uh, ready to replace you at any moment. And, 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 and there's, uh, there's tremendous wisdom in that. but there's also um, for me, I, I looked at who could do a better job than me and the SEAL teams, and, and it wasn't hard to find anyone. But I looked at my bride and my daughter and my brother and my sister and my mom and all these other people, and I just, I just knew that's where I needed to be. I needed to take care of my family. So left and, and left the military and, and uh, went to the private sector and very quickly became the worst financial advisor. Uh, I had an amazing company, incredible partners, but it was just 
like, you know, the minute you're not supposed to be playing a sport or a position within a sport. And, and I knew that very quickly. Um, I would sit down and someone would go, Hey, can I manage your wealth? And they go, no. And I'm like, well, I don't want to manage your wealth anyway. I hate you and everything about you. Cause I had some anger issues I was processing at the time. What about them? It's about me. And then I'm also really honest. So I would sit down and someone would go, Hey, can I manage your wealth? And they go, are you better than my person? I'm like, well, who's your person? And they're like, well, she's so-and-so and so-and-so. I'm like, well, no, they're so much better than me. So you should stay with them. If they die, call me, but I'd stay with them. And as I, I think sports teaches you to defer to talent. Like the moment suffers inefficiency very poorly. And when you're talking about wealth that someone's worked really hard to accrue, um, you have to be very honest with yourself about whether you're the, the person that should start that game, right? I, I, I pulled myself out of the last few snaps of my college career because we were playing a very prolific passing team and, and that wasn't my strength. If they were going to blitz me, keep me in. But if you need me to cover Tony Gonzalez, you probably ought to put someone else in there because he's really good. Um, and then Katrina happened. Some people in Dallas Fort Worth knew my background. So they asked me to go into Katrina and pull some people out. And, and, I, and I did. I, 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 I grabbed a few guys that I knew and trusted and knew had a lot of talent and ability and experience. And we went into New Orleans and pulled quite a few people out. And then once we were done with that, we started just trying to help in the community wherever we could and came back and uh, went to work. And my bosses were like, hey, um, that is what you're supposed to be doing. Like you, you are, you're, you're decent at this, which I think they're just being really kind. I think they're being really gentle at this, but they just showed me a list of all these wonderful business leaders who had called to ask me to visit with them about risk and safety and all these other things. Um, and they're like, Clint, that's called a business. And so I started uh, my first company in 2005 uh, as a way to be a, uh, an advisor, to really some of the best business leaders. Like for me, the transition, I tell people the transition from the military, or even as an athlete, um, transition from the military is one day, hey, you can't play football anymore. So, but you can still be an athlete. So you look to the landscape to figure out what other sports you might excel at. Like, how do I export these things I know how to do to, a, to, a, to another sport? And what coach do I want to earn the right to play for? And you just kind of get to work and you figure the rest out along the way and you earn the right to get increasing playing time. So I've always understood the meritocracy. And, and I loved creating portals where the meritocracy worked in facilitating transition for both athletes and veterans. And, and you know, the, your earlier guest, you know, Todd is a, is a wonderful example of that. Like I, I have no real value to a guy like Todd as senior and accomplished as he is in the marketing space, other than maybe some of the soft skills that I'd accrued as an athlete and as an operator and to be able to share those things and provide value to someone like him and then earn the right to be able to learn from him. Or there's other incredible, there's a, a, a so many incredible female executives and, and, and amazing Fortune 100 companies that have earned the right to learn from because they could do this one thing well that they needed. And so that should be encouraging to all your listeners is, is, is to go, hey, what one thing can, am I gifted for that I'm, I'm capable of and, and who needs that that I want to be around and learn from? And, and that's really brought us to today. Brought us to today is, you know, I get to lead a, a small holding company called Dreadnought. And what Dreadnought does is uh, builds and, and leads brands that allow us to work for the best leaders in America and create amazing careers for veterans and athletes as they transition from careers in service and competition. So we can win the war on veteran and athlete suicide with the power of daily wins and a good day's work. Um, and we do that by distilling the hard skills, soft skills, and experiences of veterans athletes into these aim small, miss small value propositions that we've just learned that leaders need. And, and we just kind of get on the field and, and try to earn the right to stay on the field uh, and, and be relevant as we do this thing called work, right? I don't know if it was concise, but that was, that's it. I've got, I've got an amazing bride and three incredible daughters that just could not care less that I was a, a Navy SEALer, played football. Um, you know, I, I spoke for Vineyard Vines and the U.S. One of the great privileges of my life is to be a resource for probably the greatest. She might be the greatest soccer coach of all time, um, football. And, and uh, But Jill Ellis, who ran the U.S. Women's National Team, and, and to be a resource for her as, as she'd done something that's never been done before. So my daughters were like, Dad, if you could talk to the U.S. Women's National Team at Vineyard Vines, that would be amazing. And, and I didn't. So I'm, you know, I've talked to them individually, but not collectively. So I'm, I'm still working to try to be cool for my daughters. Yeah, <laughs> that's difficult. Which is a moving target, by the way. Like you can be like last week's cool is uh, this week's on oh, dad. So that's, I'm trying to figure that out. It's, that's, a, that's a mystery to me. Yeah, and when you try to be cool, it's the worst thing. It's ever. worse. It's absolutely I know. awful. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. So I just, my job is to scare the boys, like scare the boys, be there for them when they need them and listen, even when I don't understand what they're saying. That's my, yeah. that's my secret. Yeah. Very admirable indeed. Yeah, it works. Well, it's interesting. I didn't realize that uh, you started life on a farm. Yeah. Well, so I would spend, um, so we, my family kind of grew up in the city in Little Rock, but one of the greatest things we'd ever do is we'd go up to my my family that kind of have moved to Arkansas from South Texas and this, in this ranch. And my, you know, my uncle, um, I, I, I have this policy. I, I fear no man, but virtually all women. It just, it's a pretty decent rule, but I do fear my uncle, my uncle, um, man, my uncle, I think has said maybe 800 words to me my entire life. And he's, and he's in his late eighties, early nineties, he's the hardest working man I've ever known. And those 800 words are typically like, why are you here? Uh, that's, that's mine. Stop eating it. Um, who are you? Just this wonderful country farm wisdom. And, you know, I've, I've, I've learned from him and I'm incredibly grateful for just being around ranchers and farmers because there's a desire to, there's an ability to endure delayed gratification that comes out of the agrarian society, uh, farming and ranching. And there's an ability to endure adversity because you can do everything right and it doesn't rain and you got to figure out how to be okay with that. And you got to figure out how to make it. So I'm incredibly fortunate to have been raised in, in, in kind of both environments, the business sector and farming and ranching. And, and it's interesting to me on a daily basis where I use wisdom that I learned from, you know, the, the, the ranch, the ball field, the battlefield and the boardroom. And as I try to have this breakfast table and build and lead a, a family that, you know, that I love a whole lot. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting to find yourself right for a situation you never encountered before, and to figure out where that origin of that wisdom or knowledge came from. And so many times, it's it's, it's from the farm and the ranch. I hadn't thought about my farming background uh, mm. too much lately until you just mentioned it. But I grew up on a farm in Wales, small dairy farm. Yeah, and I used to sit on the tractor with my father as he turned the fields and made hay. And I would follow him around the farm, you know, as he brought the herd in to yeah. milk the herd. And you're absolutely right. You know, you do everything right and you think you're going to bring the hay in on a certain day and right. then it rains and then yeah. you can't. And, and it's interesting in Wales and, and it, you know, it was the absence of rain was never the problem. It was the, right. it was the presence of rain. <laughs> and then you have, other, but the reality is either, either side of that. And, and that keeps you from making rain the God because too much rain and too little rain, they, they both produce the same effect. Right. And, and I just think about that armchair wisdom that I gained just from these amazing men and women that really built the nation and, and, and listen to them on the front porch. I think it's a casualty of our society today. And, and, and I'm not as much at war with social media as, as, as one would think or what a lot of people think. One of the things I think it's really interesting about social media, when you do it right and you do it intentionally, it has hallmarks of the visiting that, that I grew up with. Like the way you grew up, there's Sunday afternoons was, you know, when you were in town and when you visited with people and you sat and listened, especially as a young person, you just sat and listened. And, and I think about the stories of World War II and I think about the things that I heard. And, and it's interesting to see how formative those experiences were in, in, in my decision making going forward. But man, I learned a lot about mental resilience, mental toughness and patience and all these other things from an environment that just gives you what it gives you when it gives it to you. And all you can do is really advantage yourself and respond to good fortune very well. So I'm very grateful for that background. Yeah. When I started working at uh, Borg Warner, that was my first corporate job. I was in my early twenties. So I went straight from college into this, you know, manufacturing plant, business environment. Well, I only knew the farm environment. I didn't know how you were supposed to operate in a corporate environment. Right. So I remember I was a temp in the purchasing department. So I was paid by the hour. And I remember people saying to me, why are you still here? You don't get paid after five o'clock. I said, but the job isn't done. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I could not, in I, in my mind, I couldn't understand why I should be leaving because yeah. the job they had given me to do for the day yeah. wasn't done. And they thought I was crazy, but yeah. in my there's mind, no, it was there's no shift, There's no shift work on the farm. You know, the, no, exactly. the, the herd does not respect the shift. You know, the herd's going to do what the herd's going to do, right? That's right. And I remember thinking, wow, okay, so that's a difference. <laughs> that's a difference yeah. between the farm. Well, but and I, it's an advantage too, as you think yeah. about it. Yeah. You, you're right, particularly when it comes to this idea of dealing with adversity. And I, I hadn't thought about it until you, you just mentioned it, but you're, you're, you're so right. It. More than you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about um, how we were introduced. I interviewed on my podcast Todd Ballard, who's mm -hmm. the former CMO of GoPro. And you had done some work with GoPro. Mm -hmm. And Todd mentioned it on the podcast interview. He was so inspired with your speech that day. And he specifically cited it. He talked about building high ground for mm -hmm. low days. Mm -hmm. So expand on that for us and tell us what that's all about and why it's so important for an authentic leader to understand that. For sure. First, it's, it's really humbling to hear, you know, Todd's perspective on that. And, and, and one of the things you, you used a, a word a moment ago, you said, you know, he was inspired. And, and I, as I've thought about that, I, I don't know that that's the right word to describe what it is I try to do with people. What I try to do with people is remind them. Um, there's a, so, so I think Todd was reminded maybe of something he'd already known, something he uh, had learned over the years, much like years of my conversation uh, about being in the ranching and farming. So I, I, don't, I don't know how much I inspire people. What I, what I try to do is remind them of, of, of what they already knew uh, because they can be far from that wisdom or far from that place sometimes. But um, so, so that's neat to know that I reminded him of something he'd learned along the way. And, and, you know, GoPro is a fascinating place. You have all these really creative people. And I think creatives are, are, are really, really interesting and inspiring to, to work with and around. And what I, what I visited with GoPro is this presentation called Pursuing Elite that I get to share with a lot of companies. Um, I have a, a speaker's reel called Hold Fast. And what Hold Fast maybe allows us to do is export the soft skills we've gained as veterans and athletes into the private sector. Uh, when you look at exportable skills and how do you provide value to the, on the map that you're on now, those soft skills, mental resilience, mental toughness, overcoming adversity, those are, those are part and parcel of, of being an athlete and certainly being a service member. Um, and, and what I try to do is I, I kind of look at myself as a little bit of a singer-songwriter. Like I, I write these songs that I can kind of sing a little bit, but I know 20 people that can sing them better than I can. And, and I try to write these things that veterans and athletes can immediately identify with and, and tell their own version of. Uh, it's almost like being an artist that delivery writes stuff that can be covered by the band that's better than them. And that presentation, Pursuing Elite, really what it says is there's really only five outcomes. Um, if we're very honest with ourselves, there's bad, average, good, excellent, and elite. And if it's our passion, our profession, on this continuum of outcomes, we should only want to be somewhere between excellent and elite. You know, elite is like this, it's, it's Camelot, it's this utopia, it's, but it's this gravitational pull that pulls us beyond what we thought was excellence yesterday. There's a wonderful saying in the, in the SEAL teams, and it's the only easy day was yesterday. And if that's your expectation, that keeps you restless. And it also makes you nervous when things get easy because it makes you feel like you're missing something or you're not trying hard enough. And what we talk about in pursuing elite is we examine the difference between elites. So there's a difference between elites and elitists. And the difference is what they do with their titles. Like an elitist is always filling themselves up. No matter what it is, it's another cup of them. And elites are are always pulling themselves out. I mean, they're almost reckless, almost um, recklessly generous with their talent and their treasure because they know two things. One, they know rising tides raise all boats, and they're also not afraid. I mean, the only reason you wouldn't share something is if you're afraid that someone's going to be able to eclipse you without what you shared with them. And so in life skills, not necessarily in, in com the competitive landscape, right? It's okay to not share your playbook. Um, but morally and ethically, we have an obligation to share with people those things that have allowed us to endure things that they may be going through. And so when we talk about the pursuing elite, it's this desire to consistently find this next ridge line and move on to it. And what I've, what, what I've learned in my, uh, just kind of learned along the way on the ball field, on the battlefield, on the boardroom, and the breakfast table, and there are amazing men and women that have clipped me in every one of those things. Because there's really these five qualities that I see elite achievers consistently have. And they're not gifts. Like when I talk about it, I jokingly say gifts because they're not gifts, they're decisions. <clears throat> but, the, but the five pursuit points are balance, curiosity, tribalism, intentionalism, and authenticity. And what Todd was referring to was the first one, which was balance. So for me, balance is not an equal distribution of effort. Balance is having high ground for hard days. It's having uh, faith and family and friends and people and places and processes that remind you who you are and what you're about um, that allow you to reload and refuel and roll right back down on the problem. And, and so for me, the difference between a hard day and a bad day is the ability to be reminded of why you're doing the hard thing in the first place. And um, so for me, what he was talking about is, you know, that high ground for hard days is the difference between uh, a hard day, staying a hard day or just or becoming a bad day. And, 
I don't really care how tough you are. You can't take a lot of bad days. But when you have these, these faith and family and friends and people and places and processes that are built to remind you why you started in the first place, you can take a lot of hard days. You can take more hard days than most people think. I mean, I, I think if you'd ask anyone back in March, if they would have been in, in able to endure these things we now consider everyday things, they, they, I don't know if they would have told you no, but they certainly would not have been excited about it. And, and yet here we are uh, creeping towards October and we are finding a way to uh, not return to who we were, but to, to drive towards this better version of ourselves, right? Um, so that, that's what Todd was referring is, is this, uh, Hey, are we advantaging ourselves for the hard day? So we can just stay a hard day. Are we, are we pre-positioning, uh, faith and family and friends and people and places and processes that remind us who we are, what we're about and why we started doing the hard stuff. And do you think Clint, that people have gone through that conversation either with themselves in their head or with their family during this pandemic? that it's given them a pause, yeah. you know, to think about it. I, I would hope so. You know, what I get to do in presentations is give people a framework to answer their own questions. And, and I, I was talking to a really wonderful transition veteran. We we're talking about going to counseling. And I was like, hey, man, all, uh, call it counseling, call it coaching, whatever you want to do. All, all a counselor does is ask you questions you don't necessarily know how to answer for yourself and then tells you what you said. So, you know, so for me, I think adversity, um, if it doesn't always, you should try to make sure it produces moments of introspection so we can kind of inventory who we are, what we're about. Um, where are we going to? Do we have high places? Hey, is, it, is it harder than it should be because we've forsaken some of this high ground or we took advantage of it? And how do we reconcile and restore those relationships so uh, they can be there for us and we can be there for them as, as this thing called life doesn't seem to be hurtling towards ease, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, it strikes me, Clint, one of your values is you're very humble. Oh, no, I'm just self-aware. Right. Like, I'd look, I'd, it's, just I, all, it's all true, right? There's no, <laughs> there's no humility. It's like, yep, I was a fish string pool back in eighth grade. There's no over-celebration of that. It's, it's, it's just, I, I was, it's, they, don't, they didn't print on the roster. Like, that's where I was. It wasn't, it wasn't on the roster. So you've got this, you know, it's, it's who you are, right? You're humble. Um, I, I think you have, you know, problem sharing uh, problems, you know, showing vulnerability, yeah. Yeah. Uh, authenticity, of course, which all of these things we know are the traits of an authentic leader. Right. Right. Now, during the pandemic, the ultimate corporate type, the sort of buttoned up, perfect corporate speak vice president, president, sure. leader of a business, right? Has had to has had to strip off that mask to a certain extent because now they're on Zoom calls with a three-year-old running around in the back or right. the, the dog jumping on their lap, right? right? So they've had to be a little bit more vulnerable. But it's given them such a great opportunity to embrace this side of themselves. Do you see that? And and what do we do to to help leaders make sure that they hold on to that? Well, so, so one, I, I, I think leaders should be really, it should be really introspective on the other side of the thing they hoped would never happen, right? And when you inventory the, the casualty of what happened when your dog jumped on your lap or your child interrupted your Zoom and you ask yourself like, hey, did, did, did I lose face with the people I'm trying to lead? Did they think more or less? I mean, what, what, what they'll typically find is when... The, the people who are following you see your humanity, it makes them want to be around you more. I, I had the great privilege of working for some amazing leaders in the special operations community. And, and one of the things I tell about people is like, I, I loved leaders that would come in and just say, hey, I don't know how to do this. It never, or I'd never had to do it this way before. It did not cheapen their, uh, uh, my desire to follow them. If anything, it made me want to be around them more because I knew I was imperfect. And it always demonstrate. It also demonstrated their need for me. So now I, I knew it was okay to be imperfect, but I also knew that I was of value and I was needed. And so I think if everybody's really honest with themselves when they examine what happened when their people figured out they're humans, that it was a it was a not a negative and, and perhaps maybe in a positive with their ability to lead authentically. Because think about this, and, and this is nothing against the publicly traded world, but 
when you decide to go public, when you're a company, you decide to go public, you've agreed to be two companies, the company that did what it did and the company that's working to make sure it remains compliant. And it's important that we do that, but you're effectively doubling down on the effort. And when you choose to be authentic, what's happening is you're streamlining the effort. It's like, hey, I'm here because I'm fit, capable, imperfect, but ready to be here. And then trying to maintain a veneer, trying to maintain a, a, a caricature of who you think that person's ought to be, it's, it's throwing ankle weights on and it's making it harder to be uh, both the role that you're in and the person you think ought to be in that role, right? And, and, and I feel like that's a, that's a deliberate disadvantage when you do that and, and to try to, try to um, be who you're not makes everything harder. Yeah, I know. I did it for many years. <laughs> I lived have. the. I live, and now it's great to just sort of you know strip off that corporate yeah. mask. And, and listen, there's no the mal- there's no malice in that mistake. And I think it's no. important that we examine the mistake, right? Like the reality is, I was trying to be Dick Buckus for the majority of my career until I realized there was a percentage of Dick Buckus that I was capable of replicating. There's also this person called Clint Bruce that was good enough, right? And, and when I talk about chasing people, I'm very deliberate. I'm like, hey, chase, chase a percentage of them that you'd like to see in you, but don't try to become them. But any of the great leaders I know would consider it a disservice to me to become all of them, right? And, and, and that humility is really, frankly, liberating. You know, and, I, and I tell my daughters this, I'm like, hey, if you're going to compare anything, compare everything. And when you compare everything, what you'll find is there's just a percentage of that person um, that, that should be inspirational to you. And, and so just pursue that percentage that um, you want to honor with your own version of that, right? And, and I think um, imitation, what they say, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Well, in, in, in the inception, maybe. But after that, it's really a disservice to, to, to who the individual imitating the person really is. Yeah, yeah, it's that's that's so true, right? There, there's no one perfect leader out there. No, it, there, there no. are just certain things that should resonate with you as a leader that you decide to take on board, and some of those things may work, and some of them don't, and then you change them. But you continue learning and growing, and and honestly, um, Clint, I will tell you that I have learned more about leadership since I've been doing this podcast and interviewing and spending time with other leaders than I think in 30 years in the corporate world. Because it's a singular pursuit. Now, you're not worried about learning and performing all at the same time. And, and, and I think for me, I have this, my daughters know this. And the first time I did it, I'm, I'm, I did it wrong. But there's a thing they all know that's why is greater than or equal to why to. And what I mean by that is you are greater than or equal yesterday's you. Like you're only competing against yourself. And the first time I did it, my daughter's like, you got the, you got the Pac-Man mouth wrong. I was like, dang it. Um, but why is greater than or equal to why too? And what I try to tell them is like, hey, you versus yesterday's you. And, and whether you beat yesterday's you by a minute or a mile, that's all you're really trying to do. And in the process of doing that, you're probably going to beat other people in this thing called competition, either corporate or, or, or athletic or all these other things. But when you recognize that it's you versus yesterday's you, the game becomes much clearer, much more simple, and you find yourself better at it than you ever thought possible. You know, I learned that from uh, Nick Norris, who's a Navy SEAL that I interviewed mm-hmm. in season one. So you're my second Navy SEAL. He's a better, and- he's a better SEAL than I was. I, I, my beard <laughs> might be better. I don't know. He's, he's yeah. so. But he's also an extreme athlete. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, what, you know, what, what are you telling yourself when you push yourself to those limits? How do you how do you get the performance to that level? And he said it's, it's incremental improvement. You yeah. just improve. You just get better and better and better. Yeah. And it's having that mindset of incremental improvement. And I thought, wow. You know, I think I was expecting some magical answer. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that something that simple and straightforward. Yeah. So do we all have that in us, Clint? Oh, 100%. To be able to do yeah, that? I mean, I, that's the thing. The, 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 the one question I ask people, hey, are, you, are you climbing the right ridgeline? I think it's worth, worth examining the ridgelines we're climbing, right? And, and whether we're deliberately disadvantaging ourselves by climbing ridgelines that we're not built for or aren't right for us. But beyond that, I, I think it does get very simple. I, I think our ability to kind of go, hey, w- what am I chasing? You know, I, I tell young men this all the time. I was like, hey, be careful who you're chasing and what your life's going to look like once you catch him, right? Um, and so I, I think it's important to not deliberately disadvantage ourselves by overly uh, 
complicating this process called who, who am I trying to be? What am I trying to do? And, and the more we keep it personal and the more we use, you know, most of life, I think is a little bit like echolocation. You just kind of send out a ping and you course correct where you are based on where those things that you're aspiring to might be. And, and, uh, and when we do it that way, when we simplify it, we find ourselves enduring, uh, we're lean. Like we're, uh, we were kind of built for that moment. One of the things I, I, I tell people is like discipline is more don't than do. And what, what you see as you kind of go through, if you watch competitors with every level they go up, there's typically a reduction in what, it take, what they take with them to do this thing, right? Because you deploy that knowledge and, and you become lean and, and fast. And we have another presentation called The Achieving Average. And The Achieving Average is really a bit of an acknowledgement of me. When I say I'm an achieving average, what I mean is if you were to aggregate all my skills and abilities, you'd find me to be a high C or low B in just about everything. So talent's not why I've been able to do these things. What I, my gift is not being gifted. What I realized very early is I needed angles, allies, and advantages to do anything worthwhile. I mean, the mountain makes all men and women average at some point in time. If you don't start with the right stuff, you're probably not going to make it. And so we look at this thing called talent and treasure and, and, and those things are important. I, I, I think it's really irresponsible, borderline reckless to not acknowledge that there's talent disparity and resource disparity at times. Um, but I do think it's important to recognize that that's only one third of the equation, right? Angles and allies are two thirds. And we've got the farm on this and, and small units and in special operations and in, in service academies as athletes is, hey, angles are... Um, this pursuit of perfection in your craft, right? And being built for the burst. We don't have to look much past nature to that. Like a lion looks lazy till it's coming at you. And they're like, Oh, that's what that was built for. Right. A great white shark looks like it's just lollygagging through the ocean till it's coming at you. You're like, Oh, that's what thing was. So when something ascends into what it's supposed to be with this total reduction of anything that causes friction, like this, this angular perfection in the pursuit of what's supposed to be, it's, it's really hard to compete with that, right? And then when you have allies, who, people who mean what they say as much as you mean what you say, again, there's a reduction in the collective effort. So when you have allies pursuing perfection in their angles, you typically find people that can beat uh, someone who has more talent or someone who has more treasure. And so for me, it's that, that that's, that's really the process is to, hey, what mountain are we trying to climb? And then are we pursuing kind of the angle, uh, like my whole deal in football was understanding mechanical advantage. So if I was playing someone who was faster than me, which all of them were, if you're faster than me, but I know where you're going, now I'm faster than you. If you're bigger than me, but I'm lower than you, now I'm stronger than you. And so understanding that mechanical advantage and then finding people who uh, were pursuing that perfect version of themselves as well, recognizing that it's not about achieving that. It's, it's like utopia. It's about being as close to it as you can and being restless on this X that everybody else calls excellent, that that's a pretty good life. I mean, that produces, that produces something you can look back on fondly and, and, and proudly. You've been around a lot of corporate leaders. You've worked with some of the top 100 companies. We're all in pursuit of being an authentic leader. What is authentic leadership to you? So, so I would tell you if, 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 you're, if you're a very senior leader in any organization and you're not in pursuit of authentic leadership, soon you will be because you will find that inauthentic leadership has an expiration date. And, and so for me, uh, authentic leadership is uh, reconciling who you are, what you're for, and what you're about um, against what the world says you should be and finding that ability to navigate through uh, to that end state that you'd be okay with. Like, I think most of us peak in our versions of ourselves uh, when we're like in the second or third grade. Um, it's less professional at that time. It's more aspirational. Who do we want to be on that? And if, and if we can work to not disappoint that person, as far as the virtues that we represent in our lives, what we'll find is the closer we can stay to that true north that we tell ourselves before the world starts competing for what that should be, the more we can live with ourselves wherever we are in that journey. And, and so for me, authentic leadership is, is being true to that true north that you decided at some point in time before the world started competing with who that person ought to be uh, and, and measuring yourself against that and then course correcting yourself closer to that. Um, biologically, we have to live with ourselves for the rest of our life and how, how, how close we are to that pure version of ourselves, unfiltered, uncorrupted, un, uh, un, un, 
unjaded about what the world would say is, 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 is how you end up sleeping really well. And so authentic leadership is leading in the day a way that lets you sleep really well at night. That's beautifully stated. But here's a problem that I see in corporate America today, and that is, you let's say you have a leader who is not an authentic leader, mm-hmm. a leader that leads with uh, fear, does mm-hmm. not create or generate trust. It's all about the numbers, the bottom line, which of course every business is about numbers and bottom line, but there are some leaders that drive purely. Yeah, is it all numbers, about that? Right. The bottom line. There's no trust. You know, there's a lot of uh, toxic politics, right? A lot of backstabbing. And those leaders in many companies have ascended to the top. So now you get millennials, Mm -hmm. Gen Z coming into the workplace, seeing that and saying, oh, okay, so this is what I'm supposed to be if I'm going to get to that level Mm -hmm. in the company. So this is who I'm meant to be because they copy and they emulate that behavior. They chase it. They chase it. So how do we how do we break that? How do we break through? Yeah, I, I referenced it a little bit earlier. I said, hey, if you're going to compare anything, compare everything. And so when we look at the totality of the lives of that person, we, we have to recognize, hey, are, 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 in order to achieve that, are we willing to endure that? And I think when we look at the totality of those of those types of leaders, I think we'll find that there's percentages of their lives that we would we, we want no part of, right? In order to be the C level of this, do I have to? I'll be estranged from my children. Do I have to have alienated my family? And these aren't always the case, but often there's a casualty that we were blind to when we start the comparison game. So my encouragement to any of the young folks that are listening to this is like, hey, if you're going to compare, compare everything. And then once you compare everything, and if you decide to continue to pursue that version of yourself, then you're not a victim. Like there's no victims. Like you knew what you were getting into. And and that's that's the thing, I, you know, for me, from a veteran's perspective, you know, I, I used to tell my guys all the time, I was like, hey, man, there's no victims in the SEAL teams. Like, look at all we did to get here. Like, it's, it's hard. And, and we have to, but we have to recognize the authorship of this circumstance. And so I want to, I, I think we're always well served to, when we compare anything, compare everything, um, and then decide whether or not to potentially endure the everything that we've seen in order to get that one thing that we thought was, was the actual goal. And then if you do, honestly, Hey, you know, you're not a victim. It's going to get bad, but you knew it. Like you, you populated the map, you drew the hills, you saw the potholes and you went anyway. So, you know, be ready to deal with it. The one thing I learned about SEAL team leadership is that it's, I originally thought that it was about command and control, right? Because I think Mm. sometimes when you think about that, you think, oh, you know, there's some really sort of like nasty guy who's like barking out orders, right? And then I couldn't believe it after I interviewed Nick, nothing could be further from the truth, right? It's all about bonding and building bonds of trust. And this whole idea of Hell Week is where that happens. And I really believe that there is a movement in the corporate world right now to get closer to this idea of building bonds of trust with your people, but it's going to be a long, hard slog to get there. But I, I believe that SEAL team leadership has a lot to teach corporate America about how to do this. Well, it's not unique to the special to the SEAL teams. I mean, virtually every military unit has this awareness that the only time you you produce a level of trust it takes to be successful in combat is you either have time or suffering. So if you have no time, then you have just hyper acute suffering because what happens is and i tell my daughters this i'm like girls it's words work and wins and uh t.e lawrence we all know as lawrence arabia once said an opinion could be argued with but a conviction is best shot because opinions are worth nothing and they cost just as much but conviction can change the world and so on this continuum of of of, of grouping the way i describe it and pursuing lead is uh you know balance curiosity tribalism when you see groups of people you can call them one of four things they're gaggles groups teams or tribes and the absence or presence of conviction is what tells you where on that continuum of are. A gaggle is yoked together by misery. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong choice. A group is united by preference. A team is united by purpose, but that purpose can be an opinion because it's everybody's opinion that they want to be a SEAL till hell week. And then you're only there on Friday if it was your conviction, right? And sometimes only extreme adversity can reveal whether your purpose is an opinion or a conviction. And, and, a lot of times that's not a character deficiency when you realize that your opinion 
instead of your conviction. It's just exposure. I was telling my, my daughter this the other day, I'm like, hey, the body and the brain and the mind always have a vote. And extreme adversity is like open mic night at a really bad roadhouse. And the body and the brain are going to grab the mic because, you know, the, the way the brain works, it's just going to survive. And you have to have a mind that's familiar enough with adversity to grab the mic back and say, hey, we're going to make it. This is going to be okay. We remember why we're here, right? And, and so we use that in the military. And we use this because we know that nothing moves at the speed of trust. And so when you have trust, you have a speed and a flexibility and an endurance and a resilience that a, a lot of other teams, that's why I love sports, kind of sports reveals that. In, in August, all the NFL teams said the same stuff to each other. And in January, the ones who meant it are the ones who remembered it are the ones who are still playing. And, you know, just because you forgot something doesn't mean you didn't mean it when you said it. That just me the that may just be the first time you realize the difference between thinking you mean and, and, and mean it really revealed itself. And what we use in the special operations crew and the, the military on the whole, like I said, this is not unique to the SEAL teams, um, is we impose adversity and we cleave, you know, you got to, I, I tell people serendipity has a lot more to do with success than most people think. Um, and you, and you got to put your words to work to even compete for the win, right? Like if you, if, if you, if your words don't go to work, you're not going to make it, right? Serendipity's not even going to show up. But we have to put our words to action. And, you know, the military gives us an opportunity to really prove that we meant what we said when we swore in or we signed up for particular units. Yeah, and you talk about uh, adversity. You know, many corporate leaders have been faced with all kinds of Tremendous issues adversity. during this pandemic. I yeah. mean, you've got both ends of the supply chain. Yeah. You've got issues left and right. Um and my hope is that they will have learned from dealing with this adversity and that it will bond them closer right. to their teams so that we can talk about transformation and what's next in the workplace. That's what gets me excited. Yeah, or it might reveal that you're climbing the wrong mountain, right? I mean, the, the reality is, is these are these inflection points that are make us ask ourselves, hey, am I, am I, am I on the right mountain or am I? Am, am, and if I'm on the wrong mountain, was it always the wrong mountain? Most of the time, no. Most of the time, it's not the wrong mountain. It's just it's wrong from now on, right? And, and adversity gives us those opportunities to ask ourselves the questions that ease never makes us ask ourselves. Yeah, that's so true. What, uh, what advice, Clint, would you give to your 25-year-old self? Now, this shouldn't be too hard for you to answer because you're dealing with a teenage daughter. Oh, yeah. No, I, I would, I would, I would tell my, I would tell my twenty-year-old self, like, just shut up, just ask more questions, listen for longer, right? And, and you know, in, in my circumstances, I, I, I imposed this inability to be wrong on myself because I was the oldest son, and, and I, I, I do believe for a period of time that faking it till you make it is okay as long as you mean it, right? As long as you mean it, you just got to, you got to tell yourself you're going to win until you win for the first time, right? And, and for me, but I would, I would. I would tell the 20 year old me, hey, it's okay to not know. It's, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay. And, and so, so find out who knows and learn from them. And the, the, the thing I tell you is I, it's not like I never did that. I would have just done more of that. When I lost my father, I just, people, one of the hardest questions for me to ever answer is like, who's your mentor? And I'm like, I have so many of them. Like I've always been incredibly intentional about having a cabinet level uh round table of advisors that I'm just going, Hey, I want to be like that person. I want to like, and they're men and they're women and they're uh, athletes and they're operators and they're business people. And I've just learned to really work hard at pulling percentages from these people that I'd like to see in my own life or pulling percentages from people that in the whole r reminded me of my father. Right. And, and, um, I, but I, I would tell the 20 year old myself to ask him more questions and listen to him more. Um, they're more available to me than I probably thought. And it was less of an inconvenience to them than, than I probably made it in my own head. We talk about curiosity and asking questions mm -hmm. and leaders often, you know, will start off a meeting and say, well, you know, if you don't understand anything, please ask a question, right? But then there's a group of people in that conference room or boardroom and there's, um, a stream of consciousness running through their head and there's that little voice and that little voice is saying, I don't want to ask that question sure, because yeah. I might look stupid. They 100%. may think I'm stupid. They may think I don't know yeah. what I'm talking about and I don't deserve to be in this room. And maybe that guy giving the presentation is my boss and if I upset him, then he won't like me and then that will cause a problem and maybe it'll impact my bonus. 
there's a voice that runs around in a lot of people's heads. Yeah. So we say, yeah, we want people to ask questions and be curious, but the reality is that we got to do much more than just say that. We've yes. got to create yeah. an environment for people yeah. to feel safe to do that. Right. So what are your thoughts on that? So, so I would tell you, I, I love this conversation. And in pursuing elite, we talk about this quality called curiosity. So we talk about balance. We talk about curiosity. We've alluded to tribalism and we certainly talk about it, authenticity. Uh, so for me, curiosity is incredibly important. And as a talent aggregator, for me, if, if I see an absence of curiosity, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing someone who's either perfect or they're done and they can't be perfect. So now they're, I don't want to say they're being a liar, but they're certainly not being honest, right? And so for me, let's look at curiosity from two angles. The, 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 the person who's not asking the question. Um, I, I call curiosity intellectual courage. And is the co-equal and precursor to physical courage. And what I mean when I say this, I'm not diminishing physical courage. I've been around physical courage my whole life. I've been around men and women of valor, by, uh, raised by a single mom after my father. I mean, I know what physical courage is. And why I'm elevating curiosity to the train of courage is this, is all we have to do is not raise our hands and no one will know that we don't know. And if we examine that further, if we examine why we don't raise our hands and what we'll tell you is, um, the reason we don't raise our hand, or at least the reason I don't raise my hand is I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people think when they realize, oh, no, or I'm afraid of the answer, right? Well, that's the definition of courage is action in the face of fear. So when we learn to raise our hand, we're basically throwing our hat in the ring for all the great things that can happen when we're curious. We're going to create, you know, I describe curiosity as a creator, uh, a catalyst, and a complacency killer. Uh, curiosity will create opportunities and relationships that we never would have found had we not asked the questions. It's a catalyst. It'll reveal that performance efficiency that, that, that is not going to find us. We have to go find it. And, and, and it's a complacency killer. And complacency is a killer. Um, if we look at the supply chain of virtually any disaster, what we'll find is complacency crept into the process at some point in time. Right? And so I, I think when we raise our hands, we're demonstrating courage because that's what courage is, action in the face of fear. From a leadership perspective, what I tell people is like, hey, if you've got a great plan, it can take anybody's questions. And when you're a leader that lets people ask you uh, questions, you're, you're, and you're helping people understand why you're doing what it is you're doing, um, that understanding why you're doing something allows them to adjust accordingly because they know why. We have this thing called commander's intent. And commander's intent is why we're doing this in the first place. And you reconcile all decisions in the field against commander's intent. But the more you know about why commander intent is, it makes you an ownership of that idea as well, right? Um, so for me... As a, as a leader, and I work with leaders on this all the time, it's like, hey, do you have an open door policy? And they're like, yeah. And all, most every great leader I know will say that. And, 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 gen and generally, they'll mean it as well. But I'll go, when is it? And they're like, it's all the time. I'm like, no, it's not. You can't mean, you can't do your job if your door is open all the time, right? And no one means anything bad by this, but the way I go, like, hey, listen, if you have an open door policy, but you're not accessible, you're not available, and you're not approachable, then it doesn't work. So accessibility is a geog geographical thing. Like, are you where I can find you for this open door policy? Are you available? Meaning is this time allocated just for me so I can ask my questions? Are you approachable is, hey, do I feel okay coming up and asking these questions? Really wonderful leader that I've gotten to do a lot of work with. And one of the things we said is like, hey, listen, um, hey, I have an open door policy from 11 to noon every Tuesday and Thursday. What's going to happen is you've made yourself accessible. And then he's a, he's a hard worker too. So I'm like, you have to deliberately look like you're not doing anything, right? Otherwise, if, 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 if you, you need to turn your screen and be playing solitaire, because that new person who walks in your office, if you look busy, they're not going to come in, right? So if you're where you're supposed to be, but you don't look available and you don't look approachable, then it, you might as well just shut the door, right? But where, if you're where you're supposed to be and, and, and you look available, like you've been waiting to talk to them. And, and, and you look approachable, like, hey, they're, they're not you expect them, you're excited to see they ask questions. What you're going to find is a really fruitful open door policy. And so we did this for about three or four weeks. And I said, how's it going? He goes, it's amazing. He goes, a, a couple of things have happened. One, I'm not getting interrupted all the time. The, the people that, I, that know, I mean, when I say when I have an open door policy, right? <laughs> they, they know like, hey, I'll just ask him more. I'll ask her tomorrow, right? So I'm seeing a stewardship of my time because I made myself available over here. The other thing is, man, I, I know my people. Like, I, I, I've, I've been able to ask questions and I've been able to share. And this is the authentic piece, right? He's been able to share how hard it was for him to get where he is right now that the packaging would never have shown. Like, our, our packaging is very rarely an ingredients list. Like, I don't remember buying something 
where the, I think somewhere at some point in time, some regulatory body made you put the ingredients on something, right? Because um, typically you don't lead on that. You don't lead on like, hey, I failed the fifth grade or hey, you know, but it's not that, I don't think many people are, I think a lot of people are proud of their scars and they just don't know the setting with which to reveal those things, right? Um, you've heard me say this, I talk about chase, pace, and pull. And so chasing is making sure you're chasing the right people. Pace is who are you keeping pace with and are you a little bit afraid they'll leave you behind if you don't put out, right? And pull is really important. If you don't pull someone behind you, then you're going to be doing it for longer than you want to or longer than you're good at it. And both of those are a disservice to who you are, right? And I have this belief that all great leaders want to get forgotten. They want to create someone that eclipses them. And I think God is really merciful in that because most time when we want to get forgotten, you just become unforgettable. Like John Wooden was trying to get forgotten for like 60 years. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just wouldn't let anybody forget him. You know, and, and, I, and, I, and I live around Roger Staubach, not geographically. He lives in a different, a better, a nicer neighborhood than I do. But I've, I've watched this man try to get forgotten since the mid-80s. And it just doesn't work. He just becomes unforgettable because he's always trying to create someone that eclipses him. And I think there should be real encouragement of that in a leadership community. So for me, curiosity is kind of a, the absence of curiosity oftentimes is a non-starter in a relationship with a leader that's, that's above me or, or, or someone that wants to work around me. Like you, if curiosity isn't in the room, we're not going to get along because for me, I automatically go, I begin to question whether courage is in the room as well. Because if you're not curious, you might not be courageous. And the stuff I'm trying to do is really hard. And I need to be around courageous people that are going to not let me make mistakes they've already made. Curiosity and courage are important elements for a high-performance team. Sure. In your mind, what is the most important trait of a high-performance team? Authenticity. I mean, listen, if you're so, – so a terminology I've become familiar with is coined by really amazing guys, Coleman Rue and Preston Klein, called Mission Critical Team. And a mission critical team is a group of age of 12 that have to affiliate for a hyper purpose reason uh, for 300 seconds or less, where if you fail, it's catastrophic, right? And when I talk about authenticity and pursuing the lead, I say there's two reasons people are authentic. One is tactical, and the, and the second is moral. And when I say tactical, it's tactically valuably authentic is it, it's, it's an acknowledgement of time. So the only agreement we've ever made as a species is the day cycle, 24-7, 365. We haven't hardly agreed on anything after that. When we look at mistakes as increments of time, we begin to understand the gravity of mistakes. Um, in the competitive landscape, it didn't matter who I was playing. It was me and Notre Dame on the clock, and me and Georgia Tech on the clock, and me and Cal on the clock, and me and Army on the clock, and me and Air Force on the clock, and the clock didn't care about either one of us. And if I make a two-second mistake and I don't tell anybody else about it, I'm dooming 10 other men to make a minimum a two-second mistake. When you begin to aggregate, when you begin to double down on that lost time, you lose. And, and frankly, we deserve to, right? Um, Progression is all about reducing the inefficiency of letting someone else learn what you already know about this thing y'all said is important. Um, so I'd say if you're, if you're a team at all, then authenticity has to be a hallmark of it. Otherwise, you're saying like, hey, I'm going to let you step in the hole that I stepped into. And then I, then I question your morality, really, at that point in time. Not just your efficiency, but your morality. Because we talk about tactical, but also moral. I mean, it, we don't recover the time spent I, the way I describe it is pretty brutally. I'm like, hey, I don't recover the time I spent on stupid. Like, I find myself on stupid a lot. And I'm like, oh, I'm on stupid. I got to get off, right? But you don't recover the time on stupid, but you do redeem it. Like, redemption matters. If, if I let you miss the hole I stepped in, I don't recover that time I spent that hole, but I do redeem that time. What meant nothing or was negative now means something. Maybe it's a net zero, but most of the time it's more than that when we let someone else miss the mistakes that we made. Yeah, very well said. Clint, what is gravitas to you? If gravitas is the hallmark, the ultimate hallmark of authentic leadership, mm -hmm. what is gravitas to you? For me, gravita gravitas is certainty. Gravitas, I mean, it's a play on the word. There's a gravity. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a weight of presence, of a purposeful presence, right? And when you're around someone with gravitas, you're typically around someone who knows why they're there and knows what they mean to do and is unwilling to let you endure the inefficiency they've already made it through, unless that's the only way to learn it, right? Um, it's interesting. I, I send these quotes to my daughters every day. I, I read the Bible to them and then I send quotes. And one of the things I talked about today was you know, the, the, power of a, the power of a certain person, right? And what you see when you see gravitas is you see certainty. You know, they, they may be wrong, but they're not wandering. Um, 
and there's power even in that air. And, and for me, gravitas is the, the, the weight of clarity in that person that you're around that reminds you of your own weight of clarity or the absence of it. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Let's go to something a little bit more personal. Sure. How do you start your day? Uh, yeah, I, I, that's, that's an ongoing experiment for me. Like I always, you know, I obviously I wake up and when I recognize, Hey, the first thing I feed myself mentally, morally, physically, or spiritually is what I'm going to be, uh, chewing on the rest of the day. It begins to shape the, I tend to steward those earlier moments, uh, really well. I have this, I'm just a fan of simplicity because the simplicity is the only thing I can remember when I'm scared and stressed. And most of my days I'm, I'm scared and stressed because I'm, you know, it's just part of it, right? It's part of being an adventurer. So I kind of have this super easily checklist. It's, you know, faith and family and focus and then fun and fitness and then faith. And it's just kind of like, hey, did I start out studying the thing I say is important to me? And then do I spend time with my family? And then do I uh, spend time on my focus, which is my business? And then do I make sure I have fun? Like there's got to be a way to have fun. And fun is a casualty. Um, so often of our society. And if you really understand the physiological positives of fun, the chemical cascade that comes like the, the, the restorative effects of having fun, what it does for you as a performer, then you'd never forsake fun. Right. And then I think fitness is, is something that's changed for me. Like I've had to, I've had to recognize this, this whole, I grew up in this philosophy. Hey, if it didn't hurt, it didn't work. Right. And to understand, you know, uh, what, what is, what does fitness actually look like for me in the season I am right now? But that's a general guideline for me. And, and all I know is when I start my days out with, with, with digging into my faith and spending time with my family, and if I can uh, maybe front load fitness, that's really great. Um, but even if I roll right into my focus, it's fine. And then I, and I try to end it with, with, with my family and my faith as well. So I, I try to be pretty specific in how I run my day as a generality. Um, I don't overly marry schedules. Um, just because the casualty of most, I mean, at the end of the day, if you think about it, I look at leadership, leading for me is a verb, right? If you're, if you're driving, you're a driver. If you're swimming, you're a swimmer. If you're diving, you're a diver, right? And so leading, I, I describe leading as being looked to in a particular moment to make a decision or perform an action based on your unique gifts and abilities. And so we all wear that weight. I mean, leadership is this fluid crown that moves along the continuum of the mission. And I think people sometimes overly associate leadership with positional authority. You know, positional authority is different. Positional authority is, is action, for sure, but it's also oversight, resourcing, and encouraging, right? And then command is probably never been less about action and more about oversight, resourcing, accountability, and, 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 and driving the mission. So <clears throat> for me, we're all leading. We have to lead at any given time. And one of the things, as a senior leader, you have to remain available to current operation, but forward-focused at the same time. And so what that means is if part of your job is putting out fires every day, that's your schedule. So, so when you overly marry a schedule, um, you deny what we talked about earlier. Like, how do you find out something's on fire? Well, you have, to, you have to foster curiosity in your people and make them know that it's okay for them to come tell you something's not going wrong as soon as it, something's not going right. Because the sooner you know something's not going right, the sooner you're able to pour into that wisdom. By the time you're leading there's very, very few leaders I know remember everything that was tough that happened along the way. Like most of the time they need a trigger. Most of the time they've been doing something for 20, 30, 40 years and they need an external stimulus to remind them of the thing they remembered happening 25 years ago. Right. So, which is again, why I come back to that approachability, availability and accessibility. Um, so for me, you know, a schedule is a, uh, a goal, uh, but availability and, and being available to the people I need to get this thing done is, is as are more important. So I, I mean that that those F's kind of it's also a redemptive of a of a letter I found on my report card often as a child. Like I'll, I'm going to I'm turn your F from a bad to a good. In conclusion, what is your legacy, Clint Bruce? Man, I don't know. I, like for me, that's something that's still being written. Like I, I tell people all the time, I want to be I want to be known as a, as as a, as a person who used their time. Um, I, I've lost. I've lost a lot of friends and I've lost a lot of family members. And one of the things I, I think the worst thing you could do is waste time. They no longer have. And so whether I'm right or wrong, I want to be known as intentional. Um, you know, 
when we buried my father, uh, Jack London's creed was read. And there's very few things I remember about my father's funeral other than just how many people were there and how many people wanted to speak of him. But I remember distinctly Jack London's creed and in the end of it, it said, proper function of man is to live, not merely to exist. I shall not waste my time trying to prolong, I'll not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. And so I just, you know, my legacy is not unique to anybody else's. I, I just want to be a person who used, who used their time. And, and you can only see that time reflected in you in the faces of people that you built into, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the deal. Like, who remembers you when you're gone? And, and uh, I don't really care if I'm remembered or not. I, 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 want, I want to see percentages of me that I took from other people and try to build on my own life and the lives of the people that have been around me. So, you know, to, to use my time. Well, and I think knowing that now makes it even more special that you gave of yourself and your time today to give this podcast interview. I really believe that you've shared a lot of great oh, insights you. that will help our audience uh, to no end. So, Clint Bruce, thank you very much. It's for a pleasure. Your time today. Thanks for your time, and and uh, th this has been. I, I've learned as much as I've shared. So, I always. Uh, this is a multiple, this is a, what are we, whatever time we spend, it's, we're, we're a multiple on it, which is great. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at gravitasdetroit.com to find out more.